what I think is really remarkable about the intellectual turn of the left in the last 50 or 60 years, which started in sort of obscure seminar rooms at universities, um, but then eventually took over a lot of mainstream institutions in the United States and elsewhere, um, is a, a very different embrace of, of identity. Not just a recognition that many people are discriminated against on the basis of their identity and that we need to redress that, but really an embrace of the idea that who you are is fundamentally determined by your identity, that you may not be able to understand somebody of a different ethnic or cultural or gender group um, uh, if you don't have uh, uh, belong in the same group, if you don't have the same experiences. That trying to live up to the kind of universal aspirations of a civil rights movement is a profound mistake. That that will never work, and therefore we actually have to embrace a society in which how we're treated uh, by your peers or how you're treated by the state will always profoundly and fundamentally depend on the ascriptive group, on the kind of ethnic, religious, sexual group into which you were born. Um, and that, I think, is just a radical rejection, not just of a longer leftist tradition of humanism and universalism, but also of the key tenets of the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, and that's why you know I find it to be a, a profound mistake and one that's worth worrying about even you know in 2023 as we also face this very serious threat from from people like Trump. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 147, and this episode is with Yasha Munk, who is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. He's also a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the host of the Good Fight podcast. I was just looking at my, my co-host, who appears like she may be about to join me. But Yasha has written five books, the most recent of which is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And it just came out a few days ago, assuming this comes out according to plan this coming Friday. It will be coming out in the future for me on September 26th. And this book is exactly what we talk about in our episode. But first, before we get to that, since Yasha was the, the first political scientist on the show. We first get into the relationship between political theory, political science, and political philosophy. And then since that satisfied my need for categories and understanding how things fit together, we move on to the text. And this means digging deep into the origins of identity politics, or as Yasha prefers to refer to them or it because of how charged the term identity politics is, the identity synthesis. And we talk about how the identity synthesis emerged from the intellectual left in the process, subverting the, the classical liberal notion of equality, which Deirdre McCloskey and I discussed at length in the episode that should be coming out three episodes before the episode with Yasha. So that should be fresh on your mind. And after talking about equality, uh, Yasha points out that this new, well, the identity synthesis, it emphasizes the differences between us, which is quite counter to what 
the movement might be attempting to achieve. So after talking all about the identity synthesis's dangers, its origins, and then how it has seemingly spread so fast, we finish with the way out of what Yasha refers to as the identity trap. So likes, comments, subscribes, follows, comments, I already said that, all so appreciated. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Yasha. You have the the distinct honor of being the first political scientist I've had on the show. And I, 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 I aim to I, ruin the reputation of political scientists in the minds of your audience forever. Well, I, I don't think that we're in danger of that happening. But I've often wondered just what the distinctions and, and intersections, I guess, as well, are between political science, political theory, uh, political philosophy, and then may, maybe even history in so much as the focus uh, is on political developments. But maybe just with an eye to these categories, why was it or how was it that you ended up in political science to do your work? rather than one of these other disciplines? Oh, that's, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, first of all, I mean, political theory is normally thought of as part of the discipline of political science. So that's one, that's one part of your question that's easy to answer. Political theory is, you know, a subfield of political science along with comparative politics and international relations and so on. But the divisions between what is political theory and what's political philosophy is really quite complicated and, and subtle. And, you know, there's also often a kind of bleeding border between history and political science. Um, uh, you know, my story is just sort of how my intellectual interest developed. So I was in history undergrad. I studied in England and it's, you know, not a liberal arts education. So you really apply for a particular subject and all you do is that subject and I did history. Um, but I did a little of uh, intellectual history and history of political thought and I loved reading the thought of Plato and Aristotle and Machiavelli and Rousseau and, you know, whoever else. Uh, but at some point I realized that my primary interest wasn't in understanding them in their context and seeing how they influenced each other and so on. I found all of that to be important and interesting, but I wanted to ask myself the same questions that they were asking their times. But what is a just society and how can we make the world better and those kinds of things. And so I sort of switched from intellectual history, which is mostly in history departments for those intellectual historians and politics departments to make things more complicated, I switched more to contemporary political theory, to asking myself these questions in a more contemporary way. And so that's why I ended up doing a PhD in political science, but really as a political theorist. And then over the course of being a grad student, um, you know, I, I grew up in Europe, I was living in the United States at this time, I did my PhD at Harvard. I started to say, hey, there's all of these populists rising in politics in Western Europe and beyond. And I'm kind of concerned about what they might do to our democratic institutions. But when I talk to more senior scholars in political science, including the empirical parts of political science, like comparative politics, they're not concerned about this. They're telling me that democracy in places like, you know, France or the United States or Hungary, for that matter, is safe. And we don't, you know, we really don't have to be concerned about that. And I wasn't quite sure about that. And so I started to argue that the rise of these forms of populism really was a serious threat to our democratic institutions. And that sort of took me 
on the next step of his journey more towards empirical political science. And so in my mind, the boundaries between these different disciplines is fluid because in my own sort of intellectual biography, I sort of traversed them at, 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 at various points. So you, you said that at the outset, you said that political theory is maybe a, a sub part of political science. And I think it would be helpful for me to hear even just briefly, maybe some examples of the questions that go into the political theory bin, and then what questions or topics go into the political science bin or the everything else bin. And maybe it is just this distinction between what's empirical and what is not empirical. Yeah, so I think broadly speaking, um, the distinction between uh, most fields of political science, so comparative politics, international relations, American politics, which doesn't really make sense that that's a separate field, but it's often thought of as a separate field. Um, uh, I mean, it's just a form of regional studies, really, in theory, but it's thought of as sort of a fourth field. Um, and different places break it out in different ways, but those are roughly speaking the ones. They're all empirical, right? So the main questions they're asking is, you know, how does, uh, you know, Congress decide on certain laws, but not on others? You know, what determines who's going to be elected president? What gave rise to the form of a modern state? What causes political revolutions? Um, you know, why are some kinds of, kind of democratic and uh, others are dictatorships. Um, in political economy, you can ask some questions about how political institutions intersect with economic growth, all kinds of questions that are empirical and that touch in one way or another on the subject of politics. Political theory is usually thought of as a set of more normative questions. So it's really sort of how do we gain the right theoretical grasp of politics, which can include the history of major political thinkers, so history of political thought is part of a discipline of political theory. It can be conceptual. What do we mean when we talk about representation? What does it mean for a parliament to be representative or not to be representative? One kind of question you, you might ask, what is power? How do we think about what political power actually is? So those kind of more conceptual questions. And then down to more straightforwardly normative uh, questions, right, um, uh, that touch on politics. You know, what kind of... Um, system of economic distribution is, you know, fair or required? What do we owe to people who may be immigrants who don't speak the language as well as native speakers? What kind of accommodation should we owe to people like that so that they can fully participate in, in civil and cultural life, right? Those would be kind of relatively straightforward questions of political theory. Then there's yet another question about how does that then distinguish itself from a subdiscipline of what you're studying, philosophy? Um, uh, but not, uh, you know, philosophy of math, but, but political philosophy, right? And and that distinction uh, is really very fluid and and, and not very sharp. Um, intellectual history and those more sort of conceptual questions tend to fall on the political theory side, and then more sort of abstract normative questions: what is the nature of justice? Um, you know, what is a just political regime, whatever kind of political obligations that people have, um, you know, the more abstract it is, the more sort of quote unquote eternal it seems, the more people would feel, well, that feels like it's on the political philosophy side rather than the political theory side. But really the distinction between those is um, somewhat arbitrary. Right. I mean, the emphasis on normativity, though, immediately makes it clear the the connection between political theory and political philosophy and the complexity of issues surrounding normativity 
also makes it clear why it would be difficult to disentangle the two. But moving on now, before we launch into this exciting installment, which I think will primarily consist in a critical discussion of issues on the left, I thought we ought to start with just a little concession or clarification about issues on the right and left. And my understanding is that writing the identity trap, the the book that we're talking about, doesn't at all mean you think that there aren't major, major problems with right-wing movements. I mean, you already mentioned populism in Hungary, and not only in the United States, but witness Hungary all around the world. So I'll begin by asking, I mean, before we get into the specifics, what made focusing on these issues on the left more important for you right now than criticizing uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary or censorship in Florida or any of the other any other of the the many discussions you could have been contributing to surrounding issues on the right? Yeah. So, you know, one of since we're talking a little bit about the academic life, one of my pet peeves about the academic life is that you're often incentivized to sort of have, you know, one to half ideas in your entire life. And, you know, you have one idea at some point, you know, in your middle or late 20s and you build a brand around that idea and, you know, you write sort of, you know, two books that restate that same idea in various ways. And then, you know, eventually you think, well, perhaps I should have one other idea in my life and you sort of write about something else for the next 30 years of your life and then you're done. And, I just, there's a limit to how often I can repeat myself. Um, uh, and, you know, I made my name, I'd, I've written on other things. My PhD dissertation was about slightly different questions. Um, but I really made my name both as a scholar and as a sort of somebody who writes for the public um, with a uh, uh, warning about the danger of populism, uh, which exists in different forms on on the left and the center and the right, but which obviously is... Uh, most prominent, most threatening at this point in, in its right-wing form. And so I'm very concerned about the way in which people like Viktor Orban have managed to effectively destroy Turkish democracy. I'm very worried about the way in which Narendra Modi is threatening the biggest democracy in the world today, India. And I'm very concerned about the ongoing threat for American democracy from Donald Trump, as well as you know, other people in the sort of MAGA fight uh, Republican Party. Um, and I've written at least two books about this, The People versus Democracy um, and The Great Experiment. And I've written, you know, hundreds of columns denouncing Trump and hundreds of columns trying to understand what all of this is. And at some point, I just couldn't repeat myself yet again. Um, there's also a kind of more more profound reason, um, other than just I wanted to think about something else for a little while. Um, uh, and that's that, um, uh, you know, just in purely political terms, um, at some point, we got to ask ourselves why we're not able to win decisive majorities against these movements and these candidates. When I first started writing about this stuff, I thought that explaining to people what populism is and why it's dangerous and why it's going to be a threat to our political institutions may be enough to build a broad consensus against these kind of movements. But that clearly hasn't turned out to be true. And uh, you know, as we're recording, it looks like Trump and Biden are pretty even in polls for 2024. And so I think we should ask ourselves some self-critical questions about why we're not able to win much more commanding majorities against these really quite threatening figures in our political system. And I think some of the failures of a broader sort of social, political, intellectual, academic elite, of which I'm very much a part um, at this point in my life, 
um, are, are part of a reason. And, and I think actually being upfront about that and thinking about that is important. And so I've become convinced that some of the new, more progressive and left-wing forms of identitarianism are superficially in opposition to far-right populism. They, they don't believe the same things. They really have different visions of the world. But politically, one is the yin to the other's yang. They actually help each other. Um, and I think one of the ways to defeat Donald Trump is, in fact, to take on some of the things that have gone wrong on, on the left and in mainstream institutions, uh, and the kind of institutions I inhabit among my friends and, and colleagues. And then the third point um, is that I think there, there are real stakes to this. Um, uh, you know, some of the criticism of the ideas that we're going to be, be spending a lot of the next hour talking about um you know, have been in the form of, oh, isn't, you know, this is just well-intentioned people fighting for good things, and perhaps they sometimes go a little bit too far. Now, I, I, I agree that, by and large, these are political movements that are very well-intentioned, but I think on many of the points, we actually do have fundamental disagreements about what kind of society we want to live in. So when it comes to a topic like cultural appropriation, for example, I absolutely agree that some of the... Uh, 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 examples that people use to uh, infer that there's a general problem with anything we might call cultural appropriation were deeply unjust. If uh, a, a white musician was able to have a huge hit with a song originally written by a black musician in 1960 because that black musician wasn't able to get major record label deals or perform in certain concert venues and so on and so forth. That's obviously an injustice. But I think if you take from that the wrong inference, but we should just in general be really skeptical and nervous about members of diverse democracies like the United States influencing each other, taking inspiration from each other, collaborating on things, uh, creating new hybrid cultures. I think that that actually devolves into a fundamental difference about the kind of society in which we should want to live. And as somebody who's interested in, in justice and is interested in uh, politics and is interested in, in thinking about the kind of aspirations we should have for the future, I think that's a really rich subject to discuss. What is the right vision for how we can remedy injustices in our society in such a way that we actually create a society that is worth living in? And I think there's really fundamental disagreements that center-left philosophical liberals like I have with some of the people in the identitarian left tradition about that. And I think those are, you know, natural material for, for a serious book. Hmm. Well, if I can just recapitulate a couple of things and then add a couple of things. So one, you've written a lot about the problems on the right. So it's time to move on because you don't like repeating yourself. And then the identity politics of the left fueled the fire of, of what they're combating in a sense. But then a couple of other things that I picked up on the book are that, well, here, I'll actually start with, I spoke with uh, the socialist economist Richard Wolff a few days ago or a couple of weeks ago. And he, he said that no matter whether or not you think socialism or communism are wrong, it is still an important, it's important intellectually and it's important practically to understand how communists or socialists think, especially as he put it, because some of them have nuclear weapons. But whether the ideology of the left is right or wrong, whether the ideology of the right is right or wrong, it's worth understanding. And the ideology of the right is already well understood, especially by you, since you've written a ton about it. So it's worth understanding more of what's going on on the left. And then the, the other point that I pulled out of your book is that you believe that the tactics of the left 
to achieve their largely laudable goals of equality. I'll, I'll stress that they're laudable, but they're counterproductive and that this needs to be communicated. Do you think my last two points are, are apt? Yeah, no, I think that's, that, that's right. I mean, another example of, uh, you know, things that certainly is, is motivated by, by the best of intentions, but, uh, but, but I think has a real tendency to backfire is a lot of new pedagogical approaches that, uh, uh, you know, some universities, but especially schools and especially elementary schools have adopted in, in the last years. So, you know, a lot of the most elite private schools in the country now have these affinity groups in which, you know, teachers come into classes of six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and tell them, hey, if you're, uh, you know, white, you go over there. If you're Asian, you go over there. If you're black, you go over there. If you're Hispanic, you go over there. Um, and the, the idea is that in order to resist, this is something that I really understood through doing the intellectual history and doing the reading about where these ideas come from, but in order to resist injustice, um, you need to have this affirmative identity as part of a group that's been victimized. And so even though a lot of thinkers have some amount of discomfort with the idea of race, for example, they ultimately end up really affirming it and saying, you know, the, the, the progressive the goal of a progressive education should be that once you graduate from Dalton School, for example, once you graduate from Sidwell Friends, if you're black, you should really primarily think yourself as black. And if you're Latino, you should really primarily think yourself as Latino. And I think, first of all, that the older goal of saying you should think of yourself primarily as human or perhaps primarily as American, but as somebody who actually is in communion with people of different ethnic groups and origins, was more politically productive and more productive, I think, to 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 a valuable personal life than, uh, than really sort of an affirming uh, uncritically uh, those forms of belonging, which will always have some role in our society, but which people always come to quite naturally. And I don't know, I think institutions would often steer against them rather than favor them. But there's also the really important question about what is that going to do for white kids? And I'm less concerned, you know, some conservatives are very concerned about we might have their feelings hurt. I, I don't think it's so bad if you have your feelings hurt a little bit as a seven or eight year old to get over it. But but there is a question about what happens with those groups. And largely now the answer in these progressive spaces is, well, we also have to make them identify as white. But we should make them identify as white and an understanding of white privilege and how unjust America is and, and, and what all the advantages are that they're getting because they're white. And so hopefully they will then become these really principled anti-racist activists. And everything I've read in social psychology, everything I learned from human history tells me but that's not going to happen. But the basic human instinct is that we can form groups on all kinds of different lines. But once I've classed you as a member of my in-group and that person over there as a member of the out-group, I'm much more likely to fight for the interests of the in-group as I've come to conceive of it and to be capable of, of quite shocking cruelty towards the out-group. And so I think the idea that we're going to get to a more just America by treating a lot of the future members of the elite to a treatment that, that makes them think, you know, the most important thing about me is that I'm white and somehow we're expecting that's going to lead to a lot of social progress. I really think that is profoundly wrong and dangerous. And so that's one example where, you know, a lot of these educators have the best of intentions. They're not trying to screw things up. They're not, you know, but I think they're doing something that's really actually quite profoundly dangerous. 
Hmm. No, I think this is a great place to start. The, the, when I encountered this neo-segregation, I don't know if you want to call it that, in schools, I was, flabber I was flabbergasted because some of it I just couldn't comprehend. So I'm from Chicago, and I was particularly surprised to see that Evanston Township High School has all-black calculus classes. And I'm hoping that you could just explain to me what the motivation behind doing this in a calculus class could possibly be? Because I struggle to understand it. I mean, you know, I, 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 I come up against my limits there too. Um, I think part of the uh, rationale is that um, perhaps black students are stereotyped as being less good at math. And so therefore um, having a space where there's only black students will somehow empower them to uh, suffer from stereotype threat less. Uh, by the way, the research on stereotype threat has been mostly debunked. It turns out that that's part of a huge set of papers in psychology that didn't replicate. Um, but there was, a, you know, a stereotype threat literature mostly based on, on girls and women, and they supposedly would benefit hugely from having the separate classes. So I wonder whether it's a little bit an extension of that. But it's also part of a broader uh, set of ideas, which motivates one of the sort of starting points of my book. Um, you know, I... I learned about and spoke to a woman called Kyla Posey, who's a African-American woman who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta, has two daughters who are of elementary school age. And because she does some work in the school as a courtesy, she usually um, gets to sort of request a teacher. And so uh, she asked the principal whether she could do that. The principal said, sure. She, she requested a particular teacher for her younger daughter. Um, and the principal kept demurring and saying, oh, well, perhaps this other teacher would be appropriate. Perhaps that other class would be better. And eventually Posey said, what, what's wrong? Why, why won't you give me the, the teacher that I prefer for, for, for my daughter? And the principal says, well, that's not the black class. Your, your, your daughter needs to be in the black class. And the principal is black. So this is not the sort of old story that sadly has you know, a lot of resonance in, in, in America because it was the reality for so long of, you know, white people who hold power wanting to segregate uh, black people. This is a very progressive black educator who has deeply bought into the idea that for a healthy identity development, um, members of one ethnic group need a large peer group of the same identity group. And so she wants to make sure that Kyla Posey's daughter has to be in a class that has a minimum percentage of black kids because otherwise she's not going to self-conceive as black in the right kind of way and presumably not going to go on to achieve the right kind of progress or fight for the right kind of social justice in, 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 in the right way. And, you know, Kyla Posey was, was really shocked and struck by that. And I had a long conversation with her. And what she told me is that, you know, she watched the inauguration of Kamala Harris um, with, with, with her two daughters and they were very moved by that. And, you know, one of them said, perhaps one day I can be vice president or perhaps one day I can be president. She said, you know, my daughters are going to be in a lot of rooms with people from all walks of life, from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of ethnicities. And I need them to be comfortable in any of those rooms because they're going to go on and do great things. So she had a very different idea about the kind of education she wanted for 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 her kids. Um, she didn't feel it was a principal job to determine sort of the race of the friends that they might make. Um, uh, but um, uh, this is now such a common part of the educational uh, system in the United States that this happened at a public school in 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 the suburbs of of Atlanta. Hmm. Well, 
Even though I know nothing about it, I can still say confidently that history is a vital component to political science because you can't understand what's going on in the present without understanding where the present came from. So since the phenomenon we've just begun to discuss, identity politics, roughly, though, despite the pejorative associations people have for those who use this term, uh, and you refer to it in a less charged way for this reason with uh, as the identity synthesis. But because this emerged from the left, and since your work is concerned, among other things, with the origin of identity politics, we should probably just start with what the left's core attitudes toward or their philosophy concerning uh, race, sex, religion, socioeconomic class were 50 or 60 years ago before the beginnings of this movement began to stir. So how was equality conceived of at, at this time? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a great question. So the you know, fundamental uh, approach of, of, of conservatism and of right in, in, in history, especially when you go back to Europe in the 17th, 18th century and so on, was to preserve society as it was. And, and, and society as it was was structured by all kinds of profound hierarchies, right? Men had rights, women did not. Aristocrats had, li- had, had rights, um, commoners uh, did not um, uh, certainly heterosexual had rights that 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 homosexuals or other sexual minorities decidedly did not at the time and so on and so forth and and the left's ambition was for centuries not just for decades to create a society in which those kind of distinctions would matter less in which uh, you know what your opportunities are what your life prospects are how you're treated would come to depend less rather than more on the particular group of which you're a part. And you know, a core part of that argument was to say that we're not as defined by the group into which we're born as some of those conservatives would hold, that you can have meaningful uh, understanding, cooperation, uh, partnership, love between members of uh, different cultural or ethnic groups, for example. Uh, that to me is the core aspiration, the core humanist, universalist inside of the left, which which has made me think of myself as a left winger since I started thinking about politics. Now, uh, it is true that the left has that, that universalist left has then sometimes been blind to or dismissive of the real discrimination that uh, members of minority groups experience, and so you had a form of that left wing activism which in one kind of sense is identity-politics and that it organized members of oppressed identity groups to fight against uh, those kind of injustices. So when you think of something like the civil rights movement or the movement in India for the rights of so-called untouchables, um, uh, those all took uh, that kind of form. But they still preserve the aspiration for a society in which we would overcome those forms of discrimination such that the society would then be less structured around those forms of identity. And what I think is really remarkable about the intellectual turn of the left in the last 50 or 60 years, which started in sort of obscure seminar rooms at universities, um, but then eventually took over a lot of mainstream institutions in the United States and elsewhere, um, is a, a very different embrace of of identity, not just a recognition that many people are discriminated against on the basis of their identity and that we need to redress that, but really an embrace of the idea that who you are is fundamentally determined by your identity, that 
you may not be able to understand somebody of a different ethnic or cultural or gender group um, uh, if you don't have uh, belonging to the same group, if you don't have the same experiences. They're trying to live up to the kind of universal aspirations of a civil rights movement is a profound mistake that that will never work and therefore we actually have to embrace a society in which how we're treated uh, by your peers or how you're treated by the state will always profoundly and fundamentally depend on the ascriptive group, on the kind of ethnic, religious, sexual group into which you were born. Um, and that, I think, is just a radical rejection, not just of a longer leftist tradition of humanism and universalism, but also of the key tenets of the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, and that's why you know I find it to be a, a profound mistake and one that's worth worrying about even you know in 2023 as we also face this very serious threat from from people like Trump. And you said a few minutes ago that out of the left of 50 or 60 years ago and beginning in these smoky seminar rooms came this completely new idea of identity, which I'll repeat, you you refer to as the identity synthesis. And I like that a lot just because it's it's not pejorative <laughs> at all, which which makes it easier to talk about. So it's called, or you, you refer to it as the identity synthesis because you write that it came out of three main movements. And these are postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. And this might be an indictment of my show, but none of these three movements has really come up other than in passing. So we don't have to be super thorough here. And I know this is quite basic for you, but in the interest of better understanding the identity th synthesis and where it came from, could you maybe share just what the the central tenets of each of these three individual movements is or was? Yeah, I'll be happy to. I I don't want to claim that I'm going to summarize all of these movements in their entirety, but I'll, I'll show yeah, you how yeah, of course not. sort of each of these movements influenced what I'm what I'm calling the identity synthesis, right? And so I think the story, and by the way, some conservatives who've written about the origins of quote-unquote wokeness um, uh, talk about cultural Marxism. They think it's just sort of you take Marxism, you stick culture in it, and many have what's going on today. And I think there's a profound misunderstanding of the actual history. And so my history starts with Michel Foucault and uh, other thinkers who are broadly part of the postmodern and post-structuralist movement in post-war Paris. Um, and what really animates Foucault is a deep skepticism about what he calls grand narratives. So he thinks that well, we have these sort of broad structuring uh, sets of ideas and ideologies that sort of try to make sense of the world and get at something like truth. And he becomes profoundly skeptical about the ability of him to explain the world. And that sets him uh, uh, against liberalism against uh, some of the uh, universalist and humanist ideals that I've described earlier. But it also sets him against Marxism, um, uh, which he also thinks makes these sort of grand claims about how history is going to play out that can't really be justified. Um, and uh, so the core of his thinking becomes a deep skepticism about any form of universal truth or any form of truth at all. Um, you know, a deep skepticism that we can really understand how the world is and what is true and what is untrue. A great emphasis on the way in which the terms we use, the kind of discourse in, that's prevailing in our society, 
determines power relations. So power for Foucault is not up down, you know, it's not top down. It's not from the president down through the army to cops to what you're doing on the street. It's, you know, by having this conversation, we are exercising power in a discourse in a way that's going to constrain other people. And he becomes deeply skeptical, therefore, of uh, basic identity categories. So Foucault is himself, as we would put it, a gay man. Um, but he doesn't believe that the term homosexual is a useful term. He thinks that that in itself is constraining and exercising power in really problematic ways. And so what you end up with is a deep skepticism about truth and a deep skepticism about viability of basic identity categories. And you really get to quite a nihilistic view of politics in which you can disrupt a, a discourse at any one point, but you can't really make progress. Um, because as he explains in an exchange with, with Noam Chomsky, um, but what would we judge whether something is progress or not? So all you can do is to disrupt discourses, and that's about it. Um, so that's sort of the first step. Um, uh, the second step comes with post-colonial thinkers. Um, and uh, in particular, importantly, is Edward Said, um, a Palestinian origin professor at Columbia University, where he spent most of his scholarly life, um, who takes the way in which Foucault talks about discourses but he makes it more political, right? He says, look, Foucault is really right and so on, that these discourses are really powerful. And that, in fact, helps to explain how uh, the West, the Occident, um, has uh, exercised power over the East, um, uh, the Orient. Um, they've orientalized these countries, and that is actually part of how we were able to build empires and exploit them and so on and so forth. But he wants to go beyond Foucault and saying, you know what, if we... Uh, recognize these discourses and that they're unjust, we can change them. And that in itself, itself would be a liberatory act. So if we sort of get rid of these sort of simplistic ideas about what the, Ox what the Orient is, it's actually going to be a tool of power for oppressed people in those colonized or formerly colonized countries. So he sort of politicizes discourse critique. It becomes something that's really a tool of political influence and power in his mind. Um, the second key figure in the post-colonial tradition is Gayatri Spivak, uh, also at Columbia University, as it happens, but a literary scholar in comparative politics of Indian origin. And what she's saying is, you know, people like Foucault, uh, they can say, uh, you know, there's no identity categories and I'm not going to speak to anybody, for anybody. Because perhaps a proletarian in Paris who's literate, who's gone to school, who has certain kind of resources... Can, can in fact speak for themselves. But I'm concerned, for example, over people in India who may not have had the opportunity to go to school, who are illiterate, who are even more powerless, who are even more poor, and they cannot speak for themselves. The subaltern, as she calls them, cannot speak for themselves. And therefore, we need to speak on their behalf. Now, this creates a problem because Spivak bought the critique of basic identity categories that Foucault and later Derrida and others put forward. But, but she still wanted to speak on behalf of these identity categories. And so she comes up with a slightly puzzling term of strategic essentialism. So she's saying this, essentialist accounts of identity that we normally use to say, you're a man, this person is Indian, this person is Hispanic, those are kind of wrong. But for strategic purposes, we need to use those ideas because that's what's going to allow people to actually organize politically against those forms of oppression. And then we get, and I know it's a long story, but we're slowly coming to the end of it, to critical race theory. 
Um, and here we are, you know, among the world of black, Hispanic, Asian American legal scholars who are trying to grapple with the success, but also the disappointments of the civil rights movement. And so uh, Derek Bell, who really is the founder of critical race theory, spends a lot of the 1960s working for the NAACP, uh, you know, lawsuits to desegregate schools in the American South. But he becomes disillusioned with that enterprise because a lot of the clients on whose behalf he's arguing in court graduate high school before the school is ever integrated. Um, and a lot of the time, these new schools aren't of very high quality. And sometimes black kids are discriminated against in, 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 in those schools. And so Bell comes in the 70s and early 80s when he really starts a scholarly career uh, to a very pessimistic conclusion. And he says, first of all, that per racism in America is permanent. You know, America in 1975, or for that matter in 2005, is no better than it was in 1950 when Jim Crow was still on the books. Perhaps it's, you know, racism is a little bit more subtle. It's transmogrified in certain ways. But really, it's, it's, it's just the same old story. And secondly, he thinks that, uh, uh, you know, universalist solutions to these problems are misguided. That if Brown versus Board of Education, the great court decision, uh, putting an end to schools that are separate, but supposedly equal, uh, uh, did not in fact uh, help African Americans as much as it promised to, but perhaps it was a wrong mistake, wrong decision. Perhaps we should have had schools that were separate, but truly equal. So he really, in a fundamental way, breaks with the civil rights tradition. He mocks the the main songs of 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 of, of the civil rights movement. Um, and then finally we have Kimberly Crenshaw, one of his students who becomes very influential, who sort of comes up with the idea of intersectionality, um, just at first to describe ways in which you might be discriminated against because you have multiple identity characteristics, a factory in Michigan may not discriminate against white women and may not discriminate against black men, but discriminate against people who are both female and black against black women. Um, and that's a valuable insight, but it's then taken up uh, to mean to, to, to much more far-reaching things by people who use the term without necessarily agreeing with Crenshaw. And the first is that, you know, if you're a black woman and I'm a white guy, I'm just never going to be able to understand you. There's just no real mutual understanding we can achieve or accomplish. And secondly, the idea that in order to be sort of part of a political movement, you sort of have to fight against all forms of oppression. And so in order for me to be an activist in good standing fighting against one kind of form of oppression, I need to also sign up against your understanding of the fight that you're engaged in against what you think of a different form of oppression. All right. So this is the identity synthesis. At this point, if you take the building blocks that each of this thinker has put in place and you add them together you get something recognizably like the edifice we have today. So from Foucault, you take the rejection of universal truth, the rejection of the idea that some things are true and other things are false. From Said, you're going to take this politicized form of discourse analysis in which the way to have political change is to, you know, uh, write a cultural criticism of a Barbie movie in a way that criticizes sort of lingering patriarchy in the movie and, um, uh, uh, you know, manages to invert the, the, the power relations. You see a lot of that kind of stuff going on today. From Spivak, we take these forms of strategic essentialism, which help to answer some of the questions you asked earlier about why is it that we're taking these seven-year-old kids and putting them into these different identity groups? Because we're saying for strategic purposes, we should teach them to think as for these essentialist accounts 
other identity are true. They need to identify by their race, even though we think race is a social construct. Um, from there, we're going to take the deep skepticism about the possibility of any form of progress and a fundamental rejection of the idea that we remedy injustice by living up to universal standards rather than giving up on those kind of universal standards. And then from, from Crenshaw, we're going to take, uh, or from the interpretation of Crenshaw, uh, we're going to take the skepticism about our ability to understand each other um, and the demand that to be sort of a, a good progressive, you have to sort of agree with progressives on all those different kinds of points. And I think if you take that, you, you start to see how it's the intellectual underpinning of uh, a lot of the kind of political and social works of, 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 of progressivism as it's emerged over the last decades. That was a very impressive, very helpful synthesis of the identity synthesis. So thank you. Thank you so much for it. And I have one question. Well, actually, I ha okay, I have many questions, but only one that like really sticks out given our time constraints. And then one thing that I wanted to clarify. So you, you've used the term universalism or universalist a few times. And what I gather is that this refers to the ideas of 50 or 60 years ago that we could perhaps achieve equality without further entrenching these racial, sexual, uh, class divisions that the identity, identity synthesis wants to emphasize. And so I was, I was wondering if you could clarify this, but then my question, which I think is also pretty simple, so I'll just ask it right now, is at the outset, you mentioned this alternative to the identity synthesis, which you think is profoundly wrong, and that was cultural Marxism. And I'm wondering, just in the interest of being balanced, seeing what that is, uh, what the alternative is, why it's attractive, and then why you reject it. Oh, so so on cultural Marxism, it's less that this is an alternative tradition as then as that uh, sort of it's an alternative tradition of how to understand what the nature or the origins of the identity synthesis is. So some people think that in order to understand sort of the world of progressivism focused on identity today, really all you need to do is to read some Marxism, and then obviously Marxists are focused on social class but they want this sort of form of political revolution, they reject bourgeois society and capitalism and so on. And all you need to do is sort of take that and stick in cultural categories like sex and gender and sexual orientation. And that's going to help you explain what that tradition is. Um, and I think that's just, that's just a mistake. It's sort of backing up the wrong tree. It doesn't actually trace the origin of the ideas in the right way. And so that's why I've sort of given an alternative account of that. Um, the question about universalism is, really uh, good and important. Um, uh, you know, sometimes there is this caricature of what the alternative to the identity synthesis would be that, that I hear a lot from in progressive spaces, but I sometimes hear from, from my students who are very smart and thoughtful, but it's, it's an idea that's sort of deeply ingrained in our culture at the moment, right? And that is sort of to say, well, unless you buy all of these uh, ideas, you're just going to be colorblind in the kind of way where you, you know, pretend that uh, racism and things like that don't exist, right? You're just going to be incapable of recognizing some of the deep injustices in our society. So if you're asking us to be universalist, what you're telling us to do is to, you know, pretend that everybody's being treated equally in society, 
close your eyes to injustice and 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 go through your life like that. Um, and and that I think is 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 uh, uh, you know a profound misinterpretation of uh, what the kind of universalism that animated the civil rights movement, for example, was. Right, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, uh, or for that matter, um, um, uh, Frederick Douglass were deeply aware of the injustices in their society in 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 their time. Frederick Douglass um, held a beautiful moving speech, uh, you know, What to the Negro is the 4th of July, uh, in which he um, lambasts the uh, people who invited him for celebrating the 4th of July while slavery is still a reality in the United States. You know, your, your words ring hollow. But he was also very clear that what he wanted was not to get rid of the idea of a constitution, the idea of a declaration of independence, the idea that all men are, are created equal. He wanted a modern society to live up to that. He didn't reject free speech because it allowed uh, slavers to say disgusting and demeaning things. He vindicated free speech as the dread of tyrants because it was also the thing that allowed uh, uh, people fighting for the freeing of slaves uh, members of, 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 of the emancipation movement uh, to argue against public opinion um, uh, 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 for the rights of enslaved people. And the same is true of Martin Luther King Jr. He talked about how the check that was written by the founders, by the constitution, uh, was, was, was blank, how uh, the promises that had been made for African Americans had been systematically broken. But what he demanded is that we be able to cash that check that you actually live up to those kind of promises. And this is the fundamental disagreement. It's, it is the disagreement between making board versus Brown a reality, making sure that we actually have integrated, high-quality schools for members of every ethnic and cultural group in the United States. And to me, the much more defeatist response, understandable in its historical context. He's a very interesting, smart scholar, but I think wrong-headed and defeatist responder for Derek Bell, who says, you know what? Perhaps we need schools that are separate but truly equal because the other thing is never going to be possible. I think that that is a profound mistake. And so in the right understanding, the universalist tradition is the one that says, let's live up to those standards. Let's make sure that people, in fact, are treated fairly rather than uh, to say that our society is just going to be forever split into these separate tribes that are competing with each other for resources and that don't really intersect in a meaningful way. Okay, well, I'm I'm really glad that now we have both the identity synthesis and universalism on the table now. We've got our, our terminology set. So let's, uh, for the moment, suspend some far-right beliefs, such as that equality is not desirable. We don't, we don't have to worry about uh, attacking that. And accept provisionally that equality is one of the most important goals for a well-functioning society. So what do you see then as the primary attraction of the identity synthesis for achieving this outcome? Because obviously it's been, it's quite powerful since, I guess, if you'll permit me to speak in the, the loose uh, Dawkinsian language of memes, and I don't necessarily mean what I'm about to say in a disparaging way, but the synthesis has really infected a great deal of minds. So how did it spread so far and so fast and so quickly? And this this all comes before we discuss what might be wrong with it. Yeah, um, 
Well, I have an account of how it it spread. Um, and then you asked me perhaps a slightly different question about why it's so attractive. So let me try and sort of answer both of those points. I mean, um, you know, what I've described so far is the first part of a book about the intellectual roots of the identity synthesis. And in a way, what you're asking about now is sort of the next part of a book, which is about, okay, so by about 2010, a lot of these ideas become super influential in universities, but they're pretty marginal in society as a whole. Kimberly Crenshaw publishes a really fascinating paper on the 30th anniversary of critical race theory um, uh, around 2010, in which she says, look, we've become super influential in universities. We have a big research program. We've been more successful than we could have imagined. But the rest of America is completely ignoring us. And Barack Obama is the worst because he really doesn't believe our ideas at all, right? And in fact, he is making it way harder for our ideas to gain any kind of traction. And so we really don't have much hope that our ideas might become influential in mainstream society. And 10 years later, that has profoundly changed and people deeply influenced by the identity synthesis, like Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi are on the top of bestseller lists at that point. So what happens in those 10 years? Well, I think three things happen. One is the rise of social media, which really tempts people into uh, uh, defining by particular identity characteristics, often in novel ways. I think part of the interesting thing here is that, you know, if you are in, an, in a high school in the 90s or in the early 2000s, um, to have a viable identity, you have to have a minimum number of people in your high school who share that identity and that limits the options. Once you have Tumblr with its self-tagging mechanisms, you can create a quite boutique identity. And as long as you find 50 people somewhere out there in the world who share that, you can sort of create your own subculture and really start to identify by that. And then you need a sort of overarching ideology that holds these different tribes together. And that becomes sort of the popularized, memeified uh, version of the identity synthesis that starts to emerge first on, on Tumblr and then on Ford Catalog and everydayfeminism.com and other kind of uh, uh, fora in the early 2010s. And then in the next step, there's a profound technological change in how content spreads. So when Vox.com is, is, is founded in 2013, most of the hits to the website still come uh, directly from the website. So most of the, most of the article reads still come from people going to Vox.com and looking at what's there and saying, this looks interesting, I'm going to click on it. And that means that the content you have on the site needs to be pretty broadly appealing, right? Like if you keep coming there, nine out of 10 articles never look interesting, you're not going to come back. But by about 2015, 2016, this shifts and suddenly most of the content spreads via social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, and a few other platforms at the time. And so then the thing that spreads most is stuff that is really directly about you. It's an article about Indian Americans and an article about um, uh, uh, you know, a particular sexual identity group, a, a particular cultural identity group, uh, you know, you know, about people who are strongly united in uh, something like veganism. Um, and, uh, and that then spreads through these social networks and social media that often are, are organized around the same lines. And so suddenly, uh, these, these kinds of publications can publish stuff where like nine out of 10 of their articles are not particularly interesting to most of their readers, but each of these articles, you know, one out, one out of 10 is super interesting to you and you're going to share it to a lot of other people who share your identity group and that's how it's going to spread. And so that really privileges that kind of form of media and um, quickly then transforms, you know, what the Washington Post and the New York Times and MSNBC and all kinds of other people publish and, and talk about. So that's one kind of mechanism. The other mechanism I'm calling the short march for the institutions 
um, which is simply that by 2010, there's you know a lot of students, especially elite students from Ivy League universities and so on, um, who are deeply steeped in the identity synthesis uh, because it becomes so dominant on campus. So you know, if they're in certain kinds of majors, they're deeply steeped in these ideas. And even if they're not, they have distribution requirements and they have administrators who have become to who have come to sort of proselytize these ideas in all kinds of trainings and so on as part of campus culture. And these students go into the workforce and they end up having an outsized impact in contexts where there's a lot of young employees, there's a lot of competition for uh, the most talented young employees, um, and the institutions have a kind of self-understanding as doing good for the world, which makes it hard to resist progressive political demands. And so in the worlds of nonprofit, of tech, of certain professional kind of firms like consulting, these ideas become particularly powerful and then spread from there. And then the third step is the election of Donald Trump. Um, there's a really interesting literature on social psychology, which shows that uh, in-group critics have a lot of credibility. That, uh, you know, if my group is doing something wrong, and I've been a member of a group for a while, and people know that, and I frame my critique as I care about this group, but I worry that we're going off the rails here, as in a way I hope I'm doing for the left more broadly. Um, actually, often groups are quite open to that. They will listen to that a lot of the time. But that ceases to be the case under conditions of threat. If you've had a feeling that there's an outside enemy, then you suddenly treat these internal critics really poorly and you treat them worse even than external enemies because you think you might be a traitor. And so as Donald Trump gets elected in 2016, poses a genuine threat uh, to democratic institutions, to minority groups, the left ra sort of rallies around the wagon and says, anybody who criticizes any kind of left-wing idea is a traitor, is secretly on the side of Donald Trump. And that's when these ideas really conquer a lot of uh, mainstream institutions. The research there on the social psychology is super fascinating. And I'm going to go right back to that in a moment. But first, I just wanted to flag that there's so much more detail both to the origins of the identity synthesis and to how it spread, and then even beyond that, the interplay between it and the universalist outlook. So I found your, your discussion of microaggressions buttressing the synthesis approach against the universalist approach really fascinating in the book. But they're all in the book, which people should read. But for now, I mean, we ought to move toward the problems with the synthesis, just given our time constraints. And, okay, entering psychology again. Do you see the synthesis view as in conflict at all with what so social psychology might suggest is a better approach to organizing society? So what I have in mind here is, on the one hand, the well-confirmed phenomenon of in-group bias, and on the other, the synthesis's reification of these very group identities, like with the the segregation of classes that we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah, this is this that's one of my 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 fundamental concerns. So, you know, one of the most impressive research programs in social psychology is intergroup contact theory. And you know what we've intergroup contact theory? Yeah. So okay. um you know what we found is that when people where members of different groups have contact with each other, so of inter-group contact, um, that often has really positive effects. So, you know, you can look at groups that have historically been very uh, inimical to each other. Um, and when members of them get to know each other better, they actually 
overcome many of the prejudices that they used to have. Um, and this is a finding we've had in all kinds of different contexts between uh, whites and African-Americans in the United States, between Irish and Protestants in Northern Ireland, between um, you know, Jews and Arabs in, in, in Israel, lots and lots of different contexts. We've seen uh, successful examples of that. But what the research also shows quite clearly is that this happens primarily when four conditions are met. And broadly speaking, these conditions are that in that society, you should have, so in that context, you should have equal status. You might not have equal status in society as a whole. One of these groups might be much more privileged than the other. But in the context in which the interaction takes place, you should have equal status. But you have to be pursuing a common goal that uh, perhaps you're trying to win some sports tournament or perhaps you're trying to um, uh, you know, fill in potholes in your neighborhood or perhaps you're trying to do something where in that context you're actually part of the same team. You're trying to do something together. And there's real encouragement from society around you to get on. People around you are saying, you know, you should get on. If you're not, then we're worried about that, right? We want you to get on. If you're in a society that says conflict is good and you should distrust each other, then that's much more uh, hard to, to, to make happen. And I do worry that a lot of the kind of institutional uh, 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 practices we've taken on in society go go right against that. Um, but these affinity groups are telling people, you're not the same, you can't trust each other, you should be really uh, scared of members of the other group that, that have the capability to um, harm you tremendously and it's perfectly natural that you might not get along. That goes against the fundamental insights of intergroup contact theory. It would be much better to put kids on a sports team together where you know, kids from different backgrounds have to cooperate in order to win. And then after they win the game or after they lose the game, they can have a conversation in the locker room or somewhere else where they also open up about their lives and can share with each other some of the experience they have in society that are discriminatory and so on. We shouldn't be blanking that out, but creating a context where we see each other as part of the same in-group and see each other as friends and comrades and then can say, hey, you know what? I face these challenges and, and, and you're my friend and I wish that you were sympathetic towards that. That's going to be much, much, much more productive than coming in and saying, you're, you seven-year-old Hispanic kid, you go over there because you're fundamentally different from a seven-year-old white kid over there. Hmm. No, those, those problems also resonate with my experience, which, which, I mean, intuitions can only get you so far, but it's good that, uh, that, uh, it makes sense in the context of my life as well. But so we've just discussed some problems that the synthesis has for intergroup dynamics, but what consequences does adopting the synthesis have at the individual level? So, I mean, one problem that comes to mind is if you identify yourself or define yourself in this extremely narrow way, just based on these boxes you check off and then restrict the ideas you will tolerate, the people you spend time with and so on, your social life can become increasingly isolated. You're thinking very siloed, and we see that in the academic world uh, big time. And then, I mean, this is pretty broad, but your impact on the world is going to be curtailed. Yeah, I think it, it, it you know, it can lead you to be 
really sort of diffident and um, scared, um, it can lead to, um, you know, a hope of the feeling of equality, but a continual frustration of the feeling of equality. I have sort of two thoughts on this. I mean, one is uh, I've talked a good bit about this to my friend Ibu Patel, who is Muslim-American, his parents immigrated from India. Um, uh, and he described how he's, he's a little older than me, you know, growing up in Illinois and uh, uh, in the you know, sort of late 70s and 80s, um, you know, he often felt very alone, right? And he often felt stereotyped and he had experiences of discrimination and so on. And when he went to college, he really became attracted to the identity synthesis, to a kind of early version of it. It, it seemed to explain everything to him. Um, and then he worked with an African-American woman who was a theater professor, and she put on a play, and he went to see it, and there was a talkback section. And he applied what he had learned in this ideology, which is he tried to take it down. He tried to look for ways in which it was somehow problematic or unjust. And he said, well, you know, in this play, which was about sort of children and so on, you know, the, the children have their own rooms. I mean, that is really deeply privileged. And, and you know, how can you perpetuate these assumptions? There's lots of kids who don't have their own rooms. And the room became very awkward. Um, and the topic session sort of ended. And, and, and this woman who had put on this play who was a mentor of his, wrote him this email saying, look, um, thank you for your criticism. Um, you know, it's easy to criticize. It's hard to build. Uh, it's always easy to sit in judgment, you know, if you think that I felt short, why do you try and do better? And that grace that she extended to him in Ibu's mind really transformed how he operated because he thought, yeah, I don't want to just be the guy sharp, sitting in the last row shouting what's wrong with something. I actually want to build something. And so I think one personal problem this can lead you to is to be like the younger Ibu rather than the slightly more mature Ibu is to go around finding fault of everything, pointing out how everything is terrible um, without actually, to, you know, putting in the work to build something that is better, to build something that is more constructive. Um, I think it's letting yourself be defined by the worst things that have happened to you rather than the things that perhaps are more naturally core of your identity. One thing that Ibu talks about is that he gets mad when uh, his very, you know, his kids, very progressive teachers, ask him about, you know, you're Muslim, you know, what's it like? And they always want to put about, like, you Muslim, you must have had all these experiences of discrimination. Tell us about what it's like to be a Muslim. And he was like, no, the content of my religion, I'm not religious myself, but, but the content of his religion is something that he thinks highly of, that that he thinks is 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 an important thing to share, and so on. And he wishes the teachers encourage his sons to share. What do you believe in? What what is your view of the world? What are Islamic values that you can share with the class rather than, you know, you're Muslim that's going to be defined by the uh, mostly or predominantly uh, by the by the discrimination you, you experience. And the third sort of worry I have is just about what it takes to have social recognition, right? I think to, to, to feel seen in a society, you know, it's hard when people say, you know, your ex groups are your terrible. So, of course, we have to fight against those forms of intolerance and discrimination. But I think ultimately we want to be seen as who we are. And we attempt to be seen as who we are by saying, but I have this mix of identities and that's what defines me. 
that's never going to adapt to who you are because there's going to be other people who share the same mix of identities who are completely different from you. And part of that is always going to be a little bit patronizing, like, oh, like you're defined by these three intersecting sort of victimhood statuses that you have. I'm not going to be seeing you. I'm going to be seeing some kind of political abstraction and defining you, by the way, by some of the hardest things you have to face. But that's not you. You're something else. So the one of the critiques of people who believe in this kind of ideology is, oh, they're all their own unique little snowflake, right? That's a kind of conservative phrase about this. I think we are all unique damn snowflakes. And I actually think the ideology doesn't allow people to be seen in the right sense as unique snowflakes. And so that's why I think of it as a personal trap, not just as a as a political trap for many people. And another way that comes up in the book, but I don't think you've mentioned yet, in which the synthesis ends up being quite antithetical to its very own principles is that in emphasizing racial, sexual, religious identity, etc., to achieve equality and a sense of belonging, it only ends up accentuating the isolation of another class of people. And that's those people who are on the margins of racial groups or social class and so on. So it really is, as I said, antithetical to that that driving purpose of achieving equality. Yeah, so this is another sort of, you know, basic problem we've been talking about. Muslims for a while, and what if you're an Ismaili Muslim, um, which is a denomination of Islam, that is heavily discriminated against in Pakistan and other places, but also among some Muslim Americans. And, you know, there you're just seen as Muslim American, right? Like like, like that is sort of the idea. But then within the Muslim community itself, you're also marginalized and discriminated against. And so if we have a, uh, you know, conception of, of society in which, you know, this collective belonging is the sort of most fundamental aspect of who you are, it's going to create all of these kind of problems where people are sort of seen as members of one group, and the members of that group don't necessarily think of themselves as, 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 as members, and, and that creates all kinds of problems. I mean, another thing that I talk about in, in the book, or briefly mentioned earlier, was sort of cultural appropriation. Now, this is brought home to me by the story of, uh, of a former student of mine who, during the pandemic, was asked by the director of the kind of university museum that she was interning in, to recreate one of the works of art in the museum's collection. There's something that museums were doing at the time to sort of bring the collection to life at a time when people couldn't go see it in person. And so she chose the self-portrait of an Asian-American artist, sort of an Asian artist and her mother, um, uh, which was, you know, a photograph which played with beauty standards and so on, made a kind of statement on what it is like to be a woman in the 21st century or something like that. And she recreated this picture with her own mother, who is a Chinese immigrant. And she submitted it, and the director of the museum said, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. Um, but then uh, the curator in charge wrote her this email denouncing her and saying, how dare you do this? This is cultural appropriation. Uh, it is not for you to recreate this picture. And uh, this former student of was confused and said, I mean, my mother is Chinese. In the picture, it's my mother and me. How is this cultural appropriation? But the student's father was not Asian. Um, and in the mind of a curator, that somehow made her insufficiently pure, uh, and I suppose insufficiently racially pure, um, to have the right to recreate the work of a fully Asian, uh, uh, non-mixed artist. Um, 
that's an extreme example. This is something that happened at, you know, an elite university in the United States in the year 2020. Um, and it shows how easily this sort of need to draw boundaries between groups in order to serve some of these ideas can go really quite disturbingly uh, wrong. And, it, and of course, the people who are going to be at the receiving end of that, again, are people whose membership in the group is not as clear or secure as that of others, right? If a student's parents had both been Chinese, uh, she would have been okay in this context, but it's the fact that she's sort of uh, in the mind of the curator, at least a marginal member of the group that put her at the receiving end of, of what to me is really quite a disturbing reaction. Well, I want to emphasize that, and that it should be apparent to everyone, that this is a, a huge issue. I mean, maybe it's the sociocultural issue of our time in so much as it's at the center of discussions of equality. And it requires not just one very good book, but many very good books to really flesh these things out. But given that given that we haven't had the time in, in our conversation for me to play devil's advocate for the synthesis view or for us to go into all of these details that we've had to skip over, what is the way out of the identity trap as you see it? So what is the ideology around equality that you'd think would better serve the attainment of this ideal of equality than the identity synthesis? Yeah, so one way of summarizing the key tenets of the identity synthesis, I've talked about its main themes, main building blocks, but you know, to do what, what in philosophy you would call um, a sort of rational reconstruction, a sort of you know, an attempt to sort of capture its core in, 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 in a briefer and more organized way, there was really three claims. It's that the fundamental prism for which to understand the world and society is race, gender, and sexual orientation. And that's more important than other kinds of ways of understanding the world. It's that the attempt to uh, have universal values or neutral rules to which societies live up um, hasn't just gone unrealized. It was fundamentally an attempt to pull people, to pull wool over people's eyes. But fundamentally, it was a sort of ideological undertaking that was meant to distract people from the forms of domination that are ongoing in our society. And so therefore, and this is the third claim, instead of trying to live up to those kind of standards, we should get rid of them and really structure our society always around how I interact with you, how we talk to each other, how we treat each other, how we should be treated by the state. All of that should be down to the particular identity groups of which you're a part. And so I think the tradition that, that I believe in um, uh, has answers to each of those points. Um, it is to recognize, first of all, that yes, of course, these forms of identity are one important prism for which to understand the world. In many contexts, thinking about race and gender and sexual orientation is the way to make sense of a situation. But that's not always the case. There's other contexts in which the thing that's more important is social class. There's other things in which the thing that's most important is people's ideology, what they believe in the world, what their values are, what their religious beliefs are, what their aspirations are. Depending on the context, you have to make sense of how to understand the world. There's not one fit size or solution, one size fits all solution. The second rejoinder is that uh, universal aspirations and neutral rules have not just been used to pull wool over people's eyes. It's one of the things that allowed 
people to argue for the freeing of slaves because they did have free speech even when it was uncomfortable to some of the most powerful people in society. The civil rights movement made tremendous progress in part because it could invoke the principles of the United States, the United States Constitution by which many Americans felt bound, but they fought the society lived up to. And when they realized the extent to which it was failing to do that, it did disturb enough of them to create significant political change. And so the third point is that we have made real progress. You can hold in your head at the same time the insight that America and every other democracy in the world uh, remain uh, fundamentally uh, unjust in important ways, um, but there's tremendous uh, progress still to be made. And the fact that, of course, the United States today is more racially just, more tolerant of sexual minorities, a more decent place to live for women than it was 200 or 100 or 50 years ago. And frankly, it's offensive to suggest that it is not, not towards people living today or towards the grand ideals or something, but towards people who lived in the past. If you actually go and look at what America was like in 1950, it becomes deeply offensive to suggest that we haven't made any progress because it's a way of cheapening the the suffering of of people at the time. And so to me, what we need to do is the ongoing fight to live up to these ideals, to make sure that these forms of less visible, more informal discrimination against minority groups uh, cease and 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 are overcome. And the idea of building in a society building a society in which, you know, what skin color we have and what group we hail from becomes less important than it is now. Not because we're ignoring injustices, but because we've built a more just and egalitarian society in which we can relate human to human rather than uh, just stereotyping each other as members of this or that group. Well, Yasha, I, I try to remain ideologically neutral, but for, for purposes of the show, but the identity synthesis, though, I mean, it's comprised of very interesting ideas and it itself, it itself comprises a, an interesting intellectual history. It's flawed and it's majorly problematic. And this has been difficult to talk about because while, uh, documentaries like Matt Walsh's, uh, what is a woman might be entertaining in a sense, if cruel and, and very offensive to some people, they're not at all productive for the discourse and they only further entrench our already really entrenched positions. So I'm very grateful to you for writing a book that takes these issues so seriously and respectfully and makes such a thoughtful and constructive intervention. So thanks a lot. And thanks a lot for talking to me. Well, thanks for a wonderful interview and um, you know, really enjoyed exploring these ideas together. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.